All right, today we are um, starting the book of Daniel. So we're skipping session seven? Yes, it was, uh, okay. it was a weird, I, I went through it, and it's like they were cherry picking verses out of Psalms and <coughs> Ezekiel and there. It was like, it, it didn't move forward okay. in the book, so I'm like, okay, yeah, we're just gonna, yeah, because we're, like, okay, we're trying to catch up anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so here we go. This is session one, integrity established. Believers can live with integrity when tempted to compromise. This will be Daniel chapter one, verses one to 21. And um, as we delve into Daniel, um, we'll look at it, all its background and all that in the, in the minute. <coughs> one of the keys though, to the book of Daniel, is compromise, or the lack of it. That's kind of the hallmark of Daniel, is that he doesn't compromise in his life by personal choice. Now, we talk about compromise a lot in our world today, and particularly in negotiations for business, or politics, you know, the House and the Senate have to compromise to get a bill passed and all that. What idea does the word compromise have in our world today? As we look at that, as we look at that word in Daniel, what is it in our world today? How does compromise, what do we think of that word? Conservatives have to give up everything they want. Okay, conservatives <laughs> have to give up what they want. Tolerance. Tolerance. Submission. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Sort of like lack of. Lack of. A lack of what? Now. Just, of, I don't know. It just seems like we're so separated. Okay. Everything is like so divided. Okay. <clears throat> There's a lack of compromise. Yeah. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Yes. Have to deal with every day. 
you know, what's okay to compromise and what's what you shouldn't compromise. I mean, that's a that's a standard that we have to set. So let's keep that in mind as we begin looking at the book of Daniel. All right, so now the book. Here we are, pass this around. Our little uh, cartoon drawing of the whole book. Uh, again, these are, if you go out to Right Now Media, I've got the video posted. Uh, it's uh, out there. It, it starts over here, and with this one, then it goes here, and then down, and down, and then it comes back up, and on around. Um, so that this one's a little different than some of the other ones. Uh, we tend to come to the book of Daniel in order to look at eschatology. And we come to the book and we want to understand Revelation. And so we read about Dan we read Daniel and his visions and all that. And we're going to look at the visions at some point. But I want us to remember the book of Daniel was not written to the church, first of all. We need to keep that in the back of our minds. We understand a lot of the book of Daniel because of what's been taught in the New Testament. But to study the book of Daniel, we have to look at it from the perspective of the Jews in captivity in ancient Babylon. We need to keep that in mind, that that's who it was written to. And it's written to them for the purposes that Daniel's going to state as we go through this. It was not written to the church. So go ahead and you can look at that. And, excuse me, absorb it. If you have your handouts with you, find your timeline and flip it open because uh, we're going to look at it here in a second. Counselor or 
um, minister of some sort, giving godly wisdom to them. And yet they still, the whole thing still collapsed and fell before his, his end. Next. Uh, where'd it go? This is Cyrus, the Persian, who defeated Babylon and came to power, bringing the Persian Empire into existence. Daniel served him. See, it's before the line. His whole reign, the great king Cyrus, was during the time Daniel was in the court. And then down here. Before the end of Daniel's life, he was one of the early captives taken to Babylon as punishment to God. He saw the first Jewish return to Israel in his lifetime. And the temple began to be rebuilt. He didn't see it finished. The finished is over here. Long after he was dead. But he saw it. So he's going to prophesy about a future for Israel. And he sees its beginnings. He saw how it ended. And how the people had sinned and were not following God. He understood all that. And he makes a choice, which is what we're going to see today. And he's going to live long enough to see God begin to reestablish Israel. Comment or question? All right. So let's get into this thing. Let's get some background. You know how I like my background. Um, the rulership of the nation of Babylon that becomes, I don't know, famous? I, maybe that's not the right word. They, I mean, it's like everybody knows there was an empire of Babylon. And we know about Nebuchadnezzar. We make fun of him and stuff. I mean, VeggieTales has got it. And, all that. But there are, there, there are a whole lot more to it than that. Um, and we don't really think about these guys. It all starts with Nabu Pulsar. Nabu Pulsar is the father of Nebuchadnezzar. He rises up against who? Or what, I should say? The Assyrians. The Assyrians, the Assyrians are ruling in the north, they're north of Babylon. They are brutal. They are just like, I don't know. They, they're the ones who invented the crucifixion. Um, they, they did it mostly as, a, as an X. And they would do whole cities and leave the people lined up on the path to the city and stuff. They're the ones who started that whole thing. Or or they would do the impaling, where they would take uh, and put you on a, you know, just like a puppet over the spike, lining the way to the city. Um, yeah, the Assyrians are the ones. They, they were, there, there was something wrong with them. <laughs> savage, yeah, that's a good word. They were savage. And Nabu Pulsar 
was displeased, and he rallied the nation of Ur and the Chaldeans and all that, which becomes Babylon. We, we, we call it Babylon. But that southern region, which is southern Iraq today, down by Kuwait and that whole lower part of it, Iraq, and they challenge Assyria. Well, he doesn't make it. He dies. But his son, Nebuchadnezzar, wins the battle at Carchemish and overthrows. That was the battle with um, one of the Jewish kings in Egypt and all that. It happened over in Syria. And he establishes dominance and Assyria falls. And Nebuchadnezzar comes to power and forges what becomes the Babylonian Empire, which we think about all the time because we know from Revelation that the great Babylon and all that, there's all that stuff. I don't know if it's actually the country of Babylon or not, but that's what we think of, is we think of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar rules because God wills it. It's God's will that he would rule the world and that he would punish Jerusalem particularly for their sin. And as is the case, he dies. And his son, Evil Murdoch, you like that? Evil Murdoch. <laughs> I like that. that, that who names, I, that, who wouldn't want to name their son that? Yeah. Evil Murdoch comes to power. He doesn't last very long. And he dies. So the second son, uh, yeah, near, yeah, near Glisser comes to power. And he doesn't last long. These, these guys, are they're months. Like, they come to power, and it's a few months. There's turmoil uh, in the courts, mainly due to the fact that the priests of the, um, I can't think of it, the priests of the uh, Ur, gods of Ur, are being ignored. They began to worship themselves as priests, or as gods, rather, and, which is what the Egyptians did. You know, the, the emperor is God, and, and all that. But they were doing it to the detriment of ignoring the other gods. And so the priests, and we'll talk about this because it's important, begin to be upset that they're being ignored, and they're not getting their tribute and stuff. And we'll see how that plays out. But he dies. Nick, yeah, Nickus comes to power. This is another one of his brothers. So these are three sons of Nebuchadnezzar. They quickly come to power and they quickly die. Nickus has a daughter. And his daughter marries Nergliser. Nick, Nick. Anyway, they have a son called Lavashin Murdoch. And he comes to power, and he doesn't last long. I think he's got like the shortest time there. And finally, Nick, I can't even say these <laughs> Well, then we get Belshazzar. So Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. We know Belshazzar. We, usually, we, we catch him in um, Sunday school as children because he's the one with the handwriting on the wall and all that. He's the last ruler of Babylon. So 
we're going to see these three guys, well, four guys, begin the downfall of Babylon the Great. This is the people who conquered Jerusalem and all that. And these four very quickly are going to create a power struggle in the empire and it will come to fruition under Belshazzar. Okay. Any questions on these people? We don't talk about these four very often, but those four are what start the downfall that becomes Belshazzar. We often just go jump right to Belshazzar, we get the handwriting on the wall, and then we know just the whole thing collapses overnight while he's throwing this party and they're they're doing, you know, drinking out of the vessels that were dedicated to God. We, we know all that, but it's been building for about two years while these four guys take power and mess it up. No? Okay. All right, so let's look at some specifics to the book. First, it's writing. Um, it is interesting. The book is written in three parts, essentially. Chapters 1 and 2 are written in Hebrew. It's written in the Hebrew language. And you're saying to yourself, well, yeah, sure, that makes sense, right? Daniel's a Jew. Why wouldn't he write it in Hebrew? Well, he did. And then we get chapters 3 to 7, and it's written in Aramaic, which is really interesting. Anybody want to venture a guess why it was probably written in Aramaic? Yeah, exactly. This is where all those dreams come in. Nebuchadnezzar's going to have dreams and all that. and, and all. So all that's directed towards Babylon. This is part of what we need to remember when we come to this book, because it is apocryphal. We talked about that last week. That apocryphal literature, this is the time period where it developed, and God uses it, and it's very visionary and foretelling and, and all that. Daniel is that way, but it's written not to the church. It's written to the Babylonian people, particularly whole sections are to um, Nebuchadnezzar himself. We can take a lot of, we can learn a lot of things from it, but it's not an allegory to the church, which is what a lot of people treat the book of Daniel. It's not an allegory. It's history. It's what happened. God did things and told the people of Babylon things for them. We're just peeking in as we look at it. It isn't written to us. And then finally, the last couple of chapters, 8 to 12, it goes back to Hebrew because it's about the future of Israel, just as we saw in Ezekiel. Um, God's got a future for Israel, and these last four chapters, uh, God is going to reveal things to Daniel. Um, about it. Questions? Comments? Alright, let's look at some dates. Here we go. There are issues in the book of Daniel. I don't know if you're aware, but I'm going to make you aware. <laughs> there are issues of dating with Daniel. Starts off with Daniel versus Jeremiah. And if you go back to your timeline, you'll see Jeremiah was alive and well during Daniel's lifetime. They were both writing at the same time. Jeremiah says that something happened in the fourth year 
of the king of Israel, or the king of Judah, rather. And Daniel said it happened in the third year. Who's right? Who's lying? Who's making things up? This is, this is something that seculars, secular historians will point to when you say you're a Christian and say, well, it's not the word of God. Look, you've got issues. These two books, these two guys can't agree. One of them is making it up, and they'll run this whole revisionist history nonsense on you. It's not true. There isn't a problem with one happening in the third year and one happening in the fourth year, and I will show you why so that you can know. Okay, this is the... Yeah, thank you. Re I, I want to call it regal because it's <laughs> royalty, but it's not. Reginald chronologies. This is how they calculate it. And there are three ways that it's calculated in the ancient world. The first one is the accession, accession year system. Accession is when you ascend to the kingship. The length of time is recorded at the beginning of the new year. So, you come to power in the middle of a year, they don't count the first year until the new year starts. So that's the start. So you might reign six months, and then your start of your first year happens. All right? It's just like calling the president the president because he got elected in November, but he doesn't actually start until Inauguration Day which is in January. So when do we start calculating it? When do we count? When he was elected? When the, the College of, of um, I want to say Cardinals, but it's not. The College of... Uh, college. Yeah, the Electoral College votes? Inauguration Day? When do you start counting? Well, you could argue all day long. And if the two of you haven't agreed on it, you're wasting your time. So that's the Ascension Year. The non-Ascension Year system... It begins at coronation. So this system starts there. And then there's the post-dating system, which the length of reign begins after the first full, full year. That system exists because a lot of guys didn't make it their first full year. So they don't even count it if you were assassinated or died before you were in office a year. Imagine that. All right? So there's that. Any questions on that? So these are the systems. Now, let's look at this. Israel, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, their new year is somewhere between September and October. They used the lunar calendar, so whenever the full moon was. But New Year's Day is in September or October following the lunar system. Here's the issue. The Babylonian New Year is the same system, but their New Year starts in May, March or April. So now you don't even have the same New Year, and you could have any one of three dating systems. So guess what? Daniel and Jeremiah didn't agree. I don't know if they even knew each other on which system to use. Daniel is in the court of Babylon. Guess what he probably used as a new year? Babylon. The Babylonian. Now, if he's using the post-date system or the um, ascension or the non-ascension, which is based on when New Year's, new year's is, right? 
and you've got a new year that's in April, and Israel's is in October, uh, you think their dates are going to line up. Now, this is also true. You have to understand, this is, you get into academic circles, and this becomes big stuff. The books of Kings Chronicles have all those lists of kings, and they don't line up. If you start taking the dates that they use, so many years in this happened, that, they don't line up. Again, they're written by different people. First of all, Chronicles is written after Israel or Judah comes back into the land. It's written by in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're recording what happened because the lost... The records were mostly lost. And so they're going back and they're digging through the temple and they're digging through the house of David and they're finding records and they're recording what happened. Those guys lived in Babylon. Where do you think they were trained in? In the, in the system of Babylon. So the dates don't match the books of Kings, which were written by the scribes in David's court and all those kingly courts. And they were using the Judean system, which has a different new year and all The dates don't line up, and they love to point out, seculars love to point out that our Bible's got mistakes. These are those mistakes. You ever see those little books? The hundreds of mistakes in the Bible and that it's not perfect and all that. It is. Because each of those is its own book. That's what we have to remember. Each of them were written by their own person in their own time for their own purpose. And they don't always mesh up because not because the, the material has changed, but because things have things are different. They have different points of views. They have a Babylonian point of view, a system of education where they learn that. It doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't make that it's not the same. We have to take in those accounts, and when we do, we find that they do line up. When we, when we adjust the dating system to a Babylonian system and compare it with the other, oh, the dates are right on top of each other. Comments, questions? Dating. Didn't know there was so much issue, huh? <laughs> <coughs> All right, <clears throat> let's move on. Uh, Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Somebody read those for us. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, 
Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned you your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the... No, no, that's okay. Verse 10. Thank you. Okay. We know this story, right? Probably had it a million times from uh, the time you were a tadpole until you left uh, the little kid's Sunday school classes over and over and over again, probably once a year. Uh, I want to point a few things out before we move on. There we go. First of all, Daniel resolved. That's a strange word. Um, the Hebrew word there is, um, the idea is he purposed in his heart. He purposed in his heart. He made a conscious choice that this was not going to happen. That he would not eat the king's food. Now a lot of people want to jump on this uh, as the biblical diet of a godly individual. And that's just not what this is about. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. Daniel resolves in his heart not to defile himself with the king's food because the king's food likely included things they weren't allowed to eat, pig. Pork was eaten in the Middle East. It isn't today. We don't think about it, but because the Arabs, the Muslims, don't <coughs> eat pork. But pigs were very common in the ancient world. They're easy to keep. You feed them whatever, and they eat it. They grow fat. And let's face it, there's nothing like a good chunk of bacon. <laughs> But that's that, that was probably part of the king's table. Well, they were forbidden. The Israelites were forbidden to eat it. Also, if you look at your map, Babylon is surrounded by rivers all the way down to the Persian Gulf. Seafood would have been common in his courts. And I'm sure shrimp, clams, crabs, maybe some lobster. They would have been normal on the king's table. All foods that were forbidden for the Jews to eat. On top of that, probably, I don't know for 100% certain, but I'm like 9.999, you know, percent sure, all the food on the king's table would have been offered as sacrifice to one of the gods and then would have been partaken uh, with it. And therefore, it was food offered to idols, which was forbidden. So Daniel is not, it's not for health reasons. As some of the more progressive churches and groups out there, you know, are like, oh, no, this is the, this is the God-ordained lifestyle. You're supposed to just eat fruits and vegetables and water 
and, and all that. And that's there, there's a huge movement of that. And that's if you're taking that from this, um, yeah, that, that's not what's going on. Daniel is looking at what God's word said and what the king was offering. I'm sure if he could get his hands on just regular old cooked mutton, sheep roasted with fire, appropriately bled out, he would have eaten it. The issue wasn't meat. The issue was what it represented. Now, Here's a young man. Now understand, Daniel and his friends are in their mid-teens, mid to late teens. Um, these youths were brought. So they were more than 13 because that was the age at which you were considered uh, an adult in the ancient world. Would be more than 13 and you would start a trade and all that. And they were probably younger than 20. So they're in that range somewhere. We don't know where. But we look at how he deals with this. And I think this is telling because today we think in terms of our rights. We think in terms of what I'm going to do and it's the right thing to do and therefore I'm doing it. And we force it on other people. It says he asked. He doesn't make the choice without acknowledging the authority over him. He goes to the chief of the units. And he asks for permission not to eat the food from the king's table. See how he pays deference to those that are in authority over him. See, we've lost that today. We want to rowl against the system. This is what God says, so I'm going to go ahead and do it, and I don't care if we've got to kill people or we've got to, we're just going to defy everybody. That's not Daniel's, that's not Daniel, is it? And we see what happens down here with the, uh, the eunuch. I want to point that out. The eunuch has a good reason for not wanting to do it. He says, would you endanger my head with the king? He is responsible for these young men. If something happens to him, he will be executed. He's the responsible party. Daniel acknowledges this and comes to him and asks and all that. Now, when we plug that into our modern-day Christianity, does it, does it hold water? Mm -hmm. How do we think? How do we act? Are we acting like Daniel? Or are we acting more belligerent and uncaring? Remember, who put Nebuchadnezzar in power? God. God. If the Scripture is very clear on that. Nebuchadnezzar was raised up to be... God's instrument of punishment on the Jews. Daniel's being punished, just like all his people. His punishment is to eat this food and learn all there is to know about the Babylonians. Daniel doesn't think that this is a good idea because it's contrary to God's law. And so he goes and asks about it. What if the eunuch had said no? That's a hard choice to make, though. That's a whole different situation, but he doesn't. I don't think we start there very often nowadays, do we? We just jump right to, let me grab my guns, and we'll just fix this, right? I want to look at names. Names are important. 
think we understand the power of names nowadays because we change them so easily. Most of us have multiple names, right? We have the one that our parents gave us when we were born. That's our legal name. We have the name that we tell everybody we want to go by. And then we have the name that everybody calls us, particularly behind our backs, that we've <laughs> earned, right? And then we have our online name for our online presence. And maybe you've got several of those, depending on what context it is, whether it's professional and work-related, you might go by this name, or maybe it's this. And then there's the, the name for the company or business we work for, or maybe we own, and you're known by that name. Names are important, but we don't think about that nowadays because we just add more names or change them. But names had powerful meanings to people in the ancient world, and they are important. So we come to Daniel. Daniel's name means God my judge. He's taken captive and brought to Babylon. His name is Hebrew. They speak Aramaic. They change his name to something they can say, right? But it's more than that because this name talks about their God. The God of Israel, the God of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, is my judge. Well, that doesn't work so well in Babylon because they don't believe in that God, do they? His name gets changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bell's Prince. Now, I want you to understand, they changed his name so that he would feel more at home with his Babylonian masters. And so they give him Bell's Prince. This is supposed to be a, uh, um, a good thing. This is, it's not like derogatory. They're not making fun of him. There, look, we're going to give you a new name, and it's going to be something good. This is this is a nice name. It, Bel is the god of Babylon. He's also known as Mer, Marduk. Um, Marduk was a creator god. He's the god who created the world in the um, Gilgamesh epic, if you're not familiar with it. Marduk slays the evil Tiamat and cuts it in two and separates the two halves and one half becomes the heavens and the sky, and the other half becomes the earth and all its stuff in this epic. And so he's the prince of Bel. He's the divine king of heaven. So he's the prince of the divine king. He's the divine king of earth. And so they're calling him Belteshazzar, the divine king of of the earth. His parents were Eneki and Damagluma. They were celestial beings that were above the universe. This was an honor name given to Daniel. But they change it. Apparently Daniel doesn't go by that name at all, does he? We only know him as Daniel. He does, it doesn't stick. Even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes him as Daniel. It's funny. But this is an honor name. Hananiah, whom Jehovah hath favored. That's what that name means. Whom Jehovah hath favored. You were favored by your God. Well, you've been drug off into captivity. 
and your people are being annihilated by Babylon. How, how important could that be, right? Your God lost. Remember the ancient world, they think in terms of this, if we win, then our gods are stronger than your gods. Sort of like, you don't want to be known as Hananiah. Jehovah didn't favor you. You were taken into captivity. That would be a horrible reminder, right? I've been favored by God to be a prisoner of some other country. So we're going to do you the favor, Hananiah. We're going to change your name to Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Aku is another one of the gods. He's also known as Nana. He's the moon god, also known as Sin. Remember that? Sin is the moon god that Abraham likely worshipped when he was in the land of Ur. Uh, he had a wife of Nagal. He was the parents of Utu and Iskor. He was the god, Aku was the god of time and fertility. Who wouldn't want to be named after that, right? Powerful god. So they changed his name to Shadrach. Then we get Michel. Who is what God is? I don't know who names their kid that. Who is what God is? Your name is who is what God is. I mean, that's a little weird, isn't it? Yeah. But that's what his name was. Well, who cares what God is? They didn't care. So they renamed him to Meshach. Who is what Aku is? Aku is the God of time and fertility. What could be there be more important, right? So they, they, they adjust his name. We're, we're going to call you that. And finally, Azariah is whom Jehovah helps. Well, here we go. You lost. Clearly, he didn't help you very much. So we, we don't want you to walk around with that name, Azariah. We're going to give you a new one, Abednego. You are the servant of Naboo. Naboo was the god of writing and wisdom. That's going to be important in a minute. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, but he's the god of writing and wisdom. He's the son of Marduk and Zapatim. Was, and he's the firstborn of Marduk. So this was an important god. The Middle Eastern kings were very much into wisdom and writing and poetry. We think of kings, we think more of the European style where they were just brutes, guys, big guys with swords. They weren't very learned. They had scribes because they couldn't read and all that. But in the Middle East, in order to be king, in order to be uh, a sheik of a nation, you needed to be more than a warrior. You needed to be a poet. You needed to be a scholar, and they often were. Uh, when we come to the Dark Ages, we call them the Dark Ages because the ideas of writing and all that were lost in Europe. That's when all the Crusades took place, and they were fighting the Arabs. The problem was, is the leaders of the Arabs, those generals and those kings, were highly educated. They knew maths and all that. It's part of the reason we lost so much of the land in the Middle East during that time was that these guys were scholars and poets and, and all that. They just weren't brute force, which is what the kings in Europe were during the Dark Ages. They didn't know things. Um, and so they had gods of wisdom and gods of writing, and they were important to them. Comments, questions? <coughs> so that's why these names are changed. They're supposed to be a good thing to them. 
The Babylonians are doing it not out of spite and control, but because their names reminded them of their past and the failure of their God. And it's just not the case. So here we go. Uh, this is part one of the book of Daniel. Godly remnant in the times of the Gentiles. They are in the land of the Gentiles. As far as the Jews are concerned, Babylon is heathens. They don't know God. They don't worship God or any of that. And now they're living there. They've been taken into this captivity, and they're living under them. And here's Daniel and his friends, and they are in the court of a Gentile king, serving at his pleasure, having to learn. They're in a three-year college program, essentially. Learn what they're being taught, or they're going to be executed. And Daniel expresses a commitment. He resolves in his heart. This is the same thing as a kid today going to college and saying, you know what, I'm not going to party. I'm not getting into that lifestyle. I'm going to do what I need to do and get out of here. That's what Daniel says. That's what Daniel commits himself. I'm going to do what I have to do, but I'm not going to sin. I'm not joining in. He's committed to obeying God, even though God has let him go into captivity. He's not there by choice, but he doesn't blame God for it. Again, this is a teenager. He recognizes, though, he has enough wisdom to recognize that being drug off into captivity, losing the war, against these Gentiles is not God's fault. We see that there is a commitment by the eunuch. He's committed to obeying the king. He has a commitment too. Which is his, right, his responsibility. It is right for him to be committed to his king. I think when we look at non-Christians, non-believers... And their commitments to the things that they have, whether it be a boss or a leader or something, we want to say, well, God trumps that. But we're told to honor our leaders, even when they're ungodly, don't we? Mm -hmm. So in this case, the king is in charge because God wants him to be in charge. And Daniel is willing to accept Nebuchadnezzar as the king. The eunuch has, he's got a position of authority. He has to obey the king. And what we see is God is blessing both of them. The evil, I mean, that's how we think of it, right? The evil king that's over me, I'm just a prisoner. And this is his lackey, this eunuch. Can God bless him for doing the, doing the right thing? That doesn't mean that God's going to let him into heaven, though, right? It has nothing to do with salvation, the fact that God chooses to bless him. God blesses evil people, doesn't he? But that doesn't mean that God's all right with what they're doing. But he honors them because he's honoring those that he set up as being in charge. So a commitment is expressed, both by Daniel and the eunuch, and the two do not coincide. 
Somebody's got to compromise. Somebody's got to decide that they're going to back off of what's going on. Are you with me? No, I'm just looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's rainy and sleepy. Okay. Your turn. Somebody read it. Daniel chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. <coughs> we think um, in a very different way about food in this day and age. Because of our modern farming methods and mass production, um, we don't we don't think of food as being rich, poor, uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, if you're talking like lobster thermidor or something like that, okay, that's rich people's food. They, they now it is. Yeah, well, lobster. And yeah, lobster was. Uh, yeah, slaves. Well, actually, you, prisoners weren't, you weren't allowed to feed lobster to prisoners for more than like two days in Massachusetts. There's actually a law against it. Um, it was considered cruel and unusual to feed them uh, lobster already. But we don't think of food in those ways. In the ancient world, meat was a rarity. You didn't eat meat very often because wealth was calculated by what? Your animals. Yeah, your flocks. How big your flocks were. And think about it. Uh, the sheep provided wool, which is how they made their clothes and stuff. So the value of sheep wasn't for its food. It was for its milk and the wool. But you didn't kill an animal very often to eat it. They weren't, they weren't considered like food. Um, and so the king's table would be set with all kinds of meat because that means he didn't need the animals for something else. It was... It, was a, it showed how wealthy he was because wealth was calculated in terms of number of animals. They didn't have banks where you kept money. You had flocks and you had fields and stuff. Vegetables, vegetables were what you ate when you were poor people. You were farmers. You would eat whatever crops you had and that was kind of all you had. Um, they didn't have refrigeration and storage and preservatives and stuff. If you slaughtered an animal, you had to eat the whole thing right away because it would rot, it would go bad. So you think about it, you kill a whole sheep, can you eat a whole sheep in, in basically a day or two? Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have methods, I mean, they would salt stuff, but this is the Middle East, you could get salt, but they didn't really have cold storage. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that, that we've discovered is that if you dig down, you have, um, what do they call it? Thermal. Huh? Is it like thermal? 
Well, yeah, they're uh, cold uh, cellars. Cold cellars, that's the word I'm looking yeah. for. Cold cellars, which is where we would store meats and stuff for the winter and all that. They really didn't have that. That, that concept comes later. They had grain storage for you know, wheat, barley, and all that. They could store that. They knew how to do it. But they didn't. And so they're being offered choice meats from the king's table. That's, that's high praise. When it comes to wine, well, they didn't have storage and bottling that we do today. We think of wine. I mean, yes, wine is expensive. They would crush the grapes at the end of the season, and they would bottle it and let it ferment, and they would put it in, in um, jars and stuff. But they didn't have ways to seal it and bottle it, and they didn't have ways to keep it cool. If wine gets too warm, what happens to it? It turns to vinegar. It turns to vinegar. Yeah, we all know that. So guess what? Poor people drank mostly vinegar. Ugh. I mean, that's that's <laughs> actually drinking. There are drinking vinegars. We we've gone back to it. Um, they're really big in Asia. Uh, they they have vinegars that are meant to be drunk. They're very low acidic and all that, but they drink it. And um, so the king's table would only have the choicest wines. They were they were fresher. They weren't. They hadn't turned the vinegar yet and stuff. So this is a high honor. Daniel is a captive from war. He's a prisoner, and they are offering him. The best food. This isn't bread and water. You know, you're just a prisoner going to throw bread and water in there. They're being offered the best of the best. This is what was placed before the king to eat. And they're turning it down. And they're choosing the food of the common poor people. Talk about a slap in the face, right? I come to your house and you make a beautiful meal and all that. And I see your little puppy dog chewing on a biscuit. And I'm like, oh, I just want one of those. You, you'd be offended, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. that, that's what they're doing. That's what's going on here. And that's why this eunuch is so concerned. But they compromise. Daniel proposes a test whether or not this is going to be a good thing. And the eunuch's like, oh, well, all right, 10 days. What could go wrong in 10 days, right? Also realize that the Jews believed 10 was the perfect number. We as Westerners have this idea that the perfect number is 7. But for ancient Israel, the perfect number was 10. And there's a whole long litany of explanations for it I won't get into. But there's a test. And the test is passed. We see Daniel offers respect and not rebellion to his captor. He offers the eunuch respect. I think we forget about that in today's world. Secondly, he's willing to accept the consequences. Here's the test. Whatever happens, I'm going to live with. I think we often are like, well, let's try this, and if it doesn't work out, well, then I'll resort to whatever means. I'll sue you. Uh, I'll quit. I'll whatever um, if it doesn't go my way. So is it really a test? No. Daniel's willing to accept the consequences. I'll eat the king's food if that's what it is. If this is what God wants, then he's going to make this work out. If not, then I'll go with it, even though it's against the law of God. 
And we see successes from God, not the diet. God blessed them. It isn't the food they ate. It could have been slugs that they asked for. And if that was what God wanted, then that's what, what, what had happened. I think we forget that. We get caught up in it. Oh, yeah, this is, the, this is the biblical godly diet. If we eat this, it'll cure my cancer. It'll do this, that, and that. It might improve your health. But the problem is, is that it isn't in the foods. It's in what God is doing. Are we aware of what God is doing? The test is passed. Daniel chapter 1, 7 through 21. Let's wrap this up. Anybody? As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought and the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among them all, among all of them, none, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians, enchanters, that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. All right. We're going to talk about this last part here. That they were better than all the magicians. Um, let's move on first. There's a recognized difference between Daniel and his friends and all the others that were brought in. And not just those that were brought in with them, but those who were already established in their fields. That there is a noted difference. Was it, it was because of the food, right? No. It's because God is using them for his purpose. We want to think it's the food. We, get, we, want, to, we want to say that that's what blessed them. God gave the knowledge and the understanding now, this is key. I want you to see this. Even in areas that are not spiritual, Daniel and his friends are being trained to be <clears throat> magicians and astrologers. These were the people that served as the counselors to the king. Now, understand. When I say magicians, our modern world, we think of magic. We think Hogwarts and people with those kinds of powers. That is not what the word means here. Magicians, the proper understanding of this word, were sacred scribes, <coughs> skilled in the sacred writings. They were a class of priests. All right, so these people served the gods and read the sacred writings. Nobody else could read them. Um, the idea is, is that they were one of many groups that knew and understood the writings that were the collections of the gods. Histories. Um, the histories of the gods, like we were talking about earlier, about who the Gilgamesh epic and all that. 
They studied and learned those things. They could write. This is because that's how the law was based. And so they become the people that tell everybody how the law is going to be applied. Astrologers were known to be enchanters. The idea is that they concealed things. They were practitioners of the occultic arts. It says that they, God blessed them to know more than the others. These aren't normal spiritual things, right? If I told you I was going to go out and get a degree in, a, in occultism, y'all would be appalled. But that's what Daniel and his friends did. That's what God used them for. And he blesses them in it because he's setting them up. He's setting them up in order to change a kingdom. But they don't know that yet, do they? All right, so some of the things that we should take away from this real quick. First of all, we should explain our reasons for holy living when asked to compromise. The world often asks us to do something different. I don't want to work on Sundays. We should have a good reason for it. A reasonable reason, a reasonable explanation. Those who refuse to compromise God's standards will be vindicated. We typically just jump right to that. But we will be, even when we can't do it. And we find knowledge and understanding when we trust God. In Daniel, in his friend's case, it's wisdom and understanding in an area that isn't even godly. But that's what was expected of them. Let's pray. Father, we know you ask things of us that are often difficult. Lord, I pray that we would have the right attitude as we go into them. To study materials that maybe we disagree with. To live in a situation that isn't necessarily the most godly. But Lord, you can keep us close to you and on the right path. And still bless us. Help us in that manner today and this week. In your name we pray. Amen.